0: Yeah, really, at the end of the day, the race is over and the guy just switched out his pit crew while the winner was walking to the podium. The changes and the actual real world implication of these changes are so minimal.
1: It is the week of November 16th, and welcome to episode 51 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, president of D. Mahler Strategies and former director of legislative affairs at the National Security Council, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Myself, Lester Munson, NSI senior fellow and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and first-time guest, Dr. Andrea Little-Limbago, NSI senior fellow and vice president of research and analysis at Interos. So last week, two days after it became very clear he was the loser of the 2020 presidential election, President Trump fired his Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and several of his senior officials without explanation and installed a relatively low-level person as the acting Secretary of Defense. It has been suggested that the Director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, and the Director of the CIA, Gina Haspel, could be next. Jamil, tell us what this means for U.S. national security.
2: Well, look, I'm obviously concerned um, firing the secretary of defense and then either getting or obtaining the resignations of the undersecretary of defense for policy, uh, the undersecretary of defense for intelligence, the chief of staff and secretary of defense, all of whom are, are have been around uh, this town a long time and been around the defense establishment for a long time, um, is concerning. Um, and then the fact that we might see the FBI director go, we might see the CIA director go, is, is, is troubling. Now, a lot of people have raised the concern, is this a coup? You know, you've seen a lot of buzz about that. There was, there was allegations the president was building a wall around the White House uh, and the like. Um, I don't think this is the coup. What I think this is, is I think um, uh, it's a resume building opportunity for some of the president's uh, friends and allies. Um, you'll see the the people that have been installed as Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence is the uh, now infamous Ezra Cohen-Watnick, who was a uh, senior director for intelligence at the White House. Uh, they tried to give him a job at the at, at DOJ. The attorney general wouldn't take him. Um, he was then stuck somewhere and then finally came back. And now he's the undersecretary defense for intelligence. Uh, we've also seen- The um, acting.
1: The acting. Acting.
2: Acting. Thank you. Well, I think, there's, yeah, I think he's, he's acting. And then I think Brigadier General Anthony Tata is the is the senior official playing the role of, you know, sort of like the understudy for um, uh, the undersecretary of defense for policy. I mean, it is an astounding uh, transformation. Um, now, to be fair to Christopher Miller, uh, you know, he was the Senate confirmed um, uh, head of NCTC. So he is actually there um, in a Senate confirmed role uh, at over at DOD. Uh, well, you know, by by way of NCTC. I, I guess what I would say is it is concerning because it, it, what it does portend is a potentially significant change in policy, right? We may see the president try to on his way out the door. By the way, you mentioned that it became clear to, to everyone that the president was leaving. Well, it is not clear still to the president, as he made clear over the weekend repeatedly. It's also not clear to Rudy Giuliani, who apparently now has the con shockingly on the president's election litigation strategy. Um, multiple Multiple law firms have withdrawn now, and so uh, you know, the president's legal strategy appears to be failing him. Um, but, you know, look, I mean, it may pretend to change the strategy in Afghanistan. It may, it may pretend that the complete pullout the president has always wanted, it may pretend a complete pullout uh, from Iraq and Syria. I don't know what it means for Germany, for NATO, for our troops in South Korea, Japan. Remember, this is a president who is suggesting he's bringing a lot of these folks home or moving them around. Who knows what kind of fresh chaos Uh, This administration could work in the next two and a half months while they're still in office. But what I don't think is, I don't think this is a coup.
1: So Jamil, let me let me push back a little bit and say that I think we would all agree the president deserves to have the advisors that he needs to get the job done. Uh, what we're talking about while their senior officials are on the civilian side, the military command structure remains intact. And if it is the president's policy to move towards a pull out of certain areas, that's his job. That's him doing his job. So is there another side of this, which is perhaps the president now has the freedom to have the advisors at the Department of Defense he's always wanted? Is, is, there, is there another side of it?
2: Look, absolutely. The president has absolute authority to make these decisions that he did, and he has absolutely the right to have the advisors he wants. And if he wants to pull troops out of Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or Germany or Japan or South Korea, he has that authority. But just because you have the authority to do something doesn't mean it's a good idea. Fire the secretary of defense with 70 X days left in your term is a stupid idea, right? It was a stupid idea for him to do it. It's a stupid idea to pull out of Afghanistan. It's a stupid idea to pull out of Iraq and Syria. It is catastrophic to pull out of Germany and Japan and, and South Korea, if that's even what the president's thinking about. It's catastrophic to pull out of NATO. So I think these are dumb ideas, uh, but of course the president wants to do it. Yes, he has the authority to do so, but let's also be honest. It's to the president has the advisors he wants at DOD. The president has one advisor he cares about, and that's Donald J. Trump. There's no other advisor he cares about. There's no other advisor he really listens to. He calls a lot of them, but there's one he listens to and that's himself. And so, and look, that's the president. That's the person that the, the people of the United States elected. He's in office till January twentieth. He can do a lot of what he wants to do. And by the way, if he's going to get pushback, it's got to, to come from Congress. And you know who sounds who's really silent right now? It's Republicans on Capitol Hill. So if they want something done, they ought to step up and say so.
1: Lauren, uh, you worked at the Department of Defense. What's what's your reaction to these firings? How will they impact the work of the department and our military around the world?
0: Well, I think there was a lot of fire and angst and everything that Jamil just laid out about, you know, this isn't a coup, this isn't catastrophic, all these big, scary words. And yeah, really, at the end of the day, the race is over and the guy just switched out his pit crew while the winner was walking to the podium. The changes and the actual real world implication of these changes are so minimal. I mean, you got a lot of folks that are padding a lot of resumes right now for the next 70 some odd days, and they are going to ride those titles as long as they can. We all know that. We've all worked with people who have written their titles in the past. And I think this is no different. I think that the Department of Defense, it takes a lot of heat sometimes for being a very big, very bureaucratic, very complex organization. And in times like this, that's what makes it so resilient.
1: It would take more than a couple of months to pull our troops out of Afghanistan anyway, wouldn't it?
0: I think it would take a lot more than, you know, the equivalent of the next 70 some odd days. Again, going on Jamil's count there, calendars have no meaning to me anymore. I'm assuming that's about right, two months-ish. But I think that to actually accomplish any significant changes at the Department of Defense takes a lot more infrastructure, a lot more buildup and a lot more time than anything that exists there right now. They were already operating on a skeleton crew of civilian leadership. So you take the folks who are already there and already challenged, you switch them out for new names. Now you have new people who are additionally handicapped by not actually knowing, you know, day one, you got to figure out how to get from your car to your desk. By the time you figure that out, you're halfway through your shortened little tenure. So I think that Yes, the president can have whoever they want. Yes, they can enact the policy agenda driven by his or her leadership. But none of those things exist here. That wasn't necessarily happening to start with. You know, we're seeing stories about how the folks in these positions and in others throughout the national security apparatus were already trying to thwart some of the better ideas coming out of the White House. I don't think that all of a sudden now that changes. I don't think that we're going to suddenly see major shifts in policy across any of these areas, Um, no matter what anyone may write on a piece of paper and send around. There are a lot of people who are really good at slow rolling a lot of things through a lot of layers of that building. And I have to believe that's what's going to happen here.
1: Jamil, did you want to respond? Well, look, I mean, I think
2: think Lauren is certainly right. People could try and slow roll it. But the president, if he decides to, can absolutely bring home the remaining 4,500 troops that are in Afghanistan by Christmas, which is what he says he wants to do. And Christopher Miller has told the troops it's time to come home. So if they want to take a bunch of C-5As and a bunch of C-130s and fly them over to Afghanistan and load them up with the U.S. troops, yes, all the material won't come out, et cetera, et cetera. But they could bring the vast majority of those 4,500 troops and have them back on U.S. soil by Christmas. The president wants to do that, right? And I think, my gut tells me, the president wants to do that. And if that happens, that is not good for America. It's not catastrophic, but it is not good for America. It would be mistaken, by the way, you'll be giving Joe Biden the best present, best Christmas present you could ever give him. Because Joe Biden, like the president before him, Barack Obama wants out of Afghanistan too. And so if Donald Trump just gives him on a silver platter an exit strategy for Afghanistan. Joe Biden's going to take it and say thank you. And that is a huge mistake for our country and plays right in the hands of all the people who want to end all the endless wars and everything will be fine. You know, the last time we pulled, out of, we pulled out of these regions rapidly, we saw the rise of ISIS. We saw Al-Qaeda attacks on 9-11. I dare say that's what we're teeing up again. If President Trump does it, it's a massive mistake. And if Joe Biden accepts it, it's a massive mistake. But I think that's what's going to happen. I think I, President, Bi- President Trump is giving Joe Biden the best Christmas present ever. And I think Joe Biden's going to take it and love it. And we're going to pay the price.
0: I think there's a big difference as we're talking about exit strategies between a smart, thoughtful exit strategy, which a lot of people on all sides of the aisle want to have happen in a smart, secure way, versus sending a bunch of planes over there, loading up a bunch of folks and bringing them back home by Christmas. I wouldn't say that's necessarily handing someone an exit strategy. I think that's handing someone a hot mess. And I think you're right. That may be what the intent is. That may be something that can happen by Christmas. But I think that across the board, in terms of the larger policy shifts on a lot of different issues, we're not going to see that happen. If we see anything move, it's going to be the Love me, love me not. Hate me, hate me not. Leave troops. Bring them home. I can't decide what I want. Guidance, if you want to call it that, that comes out from Miller. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't think the president's paying attention to it. I think the people around the president might see an opportunity to do that. But I think they're again, I, I have to hope that the folks who have been able to thwart that plan so far are able to still do it.
2: If Donald Trump does bring home 4,500 or roughly whatever it is, American troops in Afghanistan, will Joe Biden put a single one of them back? Because if he doesn't, I think that's bad for American national security. Will he? And what do you think about that, Lauren?
0: I think that's a great question. Um, I think that is a position I hope none of us are in. I mean, it's always a great question, Jamil, right? I think that the hypothetical situation where we could find ourselves in that position will be one that has to be tackled on day one. It's something that you can't just slow roll your way into. And I think a huge impact into how that question gets answered will come in how we see this actual transition of power occur in the next few months. If you show up on day one and someone says, surprise, here's a present. I wrapped up a big, gigantic troop withdrawal for you a month ago. Good luck. Um, That's a very different situation than if the teams are starting to transition in the smart, responsible, traditional way that we always have. So right now, I think the, the biggest challenge and obstacle to that is the president himself.
1: Andrea, jump in here. How do you think other countries, whether they're adversaries or allies, are viewing all of this churn at the Pentagon?
3: You know, I, I think that hypothetical question that Jamil just posed you know, sort of nails what the problem is that they, they don't know what to prepare for. <laughs> Basically, that's whiplash. It's one end or the other end, and they have no clue which direction the United States is going to go. And so we you know, lose our credibility on that. They're not sure whether they can take us out of word one day, because it might be a very different decision made the next day, which then might change again in January. And so it is, it's, you know, I think there's a whiplash for the people working within the department of defense right now, because they don't know what strategies to plan for and to build that out. And then you have the, you know, our allies and adversaries, both You know, on the one hand, you know, I guess, if we want to throw confusion to our adversaries, that helps out a little bit, but um, at the same time, you know, it also just, I think highlights a weakness uh, in, in our ability to both follow through um, and, you know, able to build up that, you know, whatever alliances systems that we may be, you know, need to be building. Um, I just, I think it overall just is, is a very big sign of weakness. Um, you know, if I were, you know, from, on the adversary's front, you know, it's a, you know, it, there's vulnerabilities that are going to be exposed over the next two months that already happened during transition. So transitions already are a little bit more of a vulnerable time. And I think this is just accentuating. it. so it, it, it you know, it really, I think, you know, Biden's going to have his work cut out for him to rebuild credibility, regardless. Whatever hot mess he gets handed uh, come January, whatever happens over the next two months, it is going to be tough. uh, And, you know, any kind of stability will be great to see if that happens.
0: To jump on quickly, just briefly on Andrew's point, too, about this being such a whiplash moment. It is just the latest whiplash that our poor allies and adversaries around the world have been dealing with. So in terms of just compounding what is already an unknown, uncertain state of affairs, this just adds to it. When you put the transition on top of it, it's it's that much more so.
1: Let me play devil's advocate a little bit here and hypothesize that. Other countries aren't as worried about the various Twitter spasms from the president. They're not as worried about uh, him calling people names and kind of the, the stuff that we find a little abhorrent or, or show, uh, displays of bad character. What other countries are interested in is whether the United States is willing to back up its values and interests in the world with either military strength, economic sanctions, or other tools of tra- of statecraft. If we do, in fact, transition to a Biden administration and a drawdown in Afghanistan remains consistent through the end of Trump and the beginning of Biden, and instead of sending troops back into Afghanistan, we we keep a, a residual force somewhere else in the region. Are our allies, in fact, seeing a lot of vacillating, or are they actually seeing unity of purpose between both Republicans and Democrats? And that, and by that, I mean a bipartisan instinct for withdrawal from U.S. leadership. Now, I, I understand President-elect Biden has talked about U.S. global leadership, but in terms of on the ground, actually seeing the U.S. make the tough decisions to remain engaged and to be at risk and to have boots on the ground in a tough place like Afghanistan, that might not be what they're seeing. Does anyone have a reaction to that? Jamil? Yeah, I mean, it,
2: it's what they've seen for the last the last 12 years. It's eight years of Obama, withdraw from US leadership, get out, do it, some things like sign Paris, right? If you call that leadership, right? But pull out of Iraq, talk about talk about closing Gitmo, couldn't do it. Talk about pulling out of Afghanistan, had to go back in, right? Had to go back into Iraq because ISIS shows up, right? I mean, but that has been, that was the eight years of Obama agenda, right? Pivot from our traditional allies to Iran and the Middle East, Right, pivot away from the Middle East to Asia, right, and then Donald Trump goes in same thing. End all endless wars. We're fine at home. We don't need to lead globally. Let them solve their own problems. I mean, the, the Obama and Trump agendas when it comes to global leadership are not that different. And I worry, I worry that that Joe Biden, having served as vice president in the Obama administration, might have the same tendencies. Now, I actually think that Joe Biden will be stronger. I think Joe Biden will bring in a tougher Uh, defense team. I think he will bring in a tougher uh, leadership in his National Security Council. I think he will have more steel in his spine than Barack Obama or Donald Trump had, but we'll find out.
0: I think that uh, there was an interesting comparison of apples to apples when perhaps uh, our fruit identification isn't as accurate as it ought to be. I don't think that you can equate the Obama and Trump approach to national security and foreign affairs. I don't think that you've found our allies in this constant state of whiplash, as we've been talking about this constant state of unknown, of uncertainty, of where do we stand? Does he love me? Does he love me not? I don't know. It depends on the tweet of the day. And I think that there is a significant decrease in the last four years of how we have seen our allies position themselves in the world and step into what is an obvious leadership vacuum created by President Trump in the national security, foreign affairs space. And I think that our allies, as they look to see what's coming next, are hopeful with good reason that we are going to be back on level standing. And they're going to be in a position where they can make decisions based on something that is predictable and from a place of strength and certainty, rather than what we've seen for the last four years. And I think to say that the last four years were just a continuation of the previous eight is an incredible disservice to the strength of the security apparatus that existed before President Trump took office, and I think is probably a little bit of a... uh, looking back and just not quite uh, understanding, still being a little, perhaps a little grumpy that it wasn't Republicans for those eight years too.
1: I will tell you that Republicans, when they look at the Obama administration, see at the very beginning, President Obama walking away from our allies in Eastern Europe in favor of cutting a deal with the Russians on strategic missile defense. And at the end of the Obama administration, abandoning our ally Israel in the UN Security Council by refusing to veto uh, a resolution criticizing Israel. And in between, flipping away from our traditional allies in the Middle East in favor of a nuclear deal with Iran. And I, and I don't mean to bring all that up again for another five minutes. And I totally concede that stylistically, the two administrations are completely different. I'd much rather listen to an Obama speech than a Trump speech. There's no doubt But on the ground, the effect is the same. The U.S. backing away from traditional allies, looking for arrangements that allow it to pull back so that there's some sort of balance left. Perhaps the Obama administration was slightly more artful about it and the Trump administration was much more abrupt about it. But the net effect is the same, which is U.S. pullback, not being willing to be involved, not trying to find solutions to problems, but instead trying to find ways to let someone else solve the problem.
0: I think it's interesting that in all the examples that you just listed of what Republicans view as our allies, never once mentioned NATO, never once mentioned any of our traditional NATO allies along the way. So it's it's interesting because it always comes back to those same Israel this, Iran that, Russia this, but there's not really... Never, never an instinct to also look at that greater picture and how that was working. Slightly different angle, not necessarily
3: the, the boots on the ground, but just at the higher level, where the U.S. absolutely was way more engaged was at the international governmental organizations. And you can question whether how useful those are, right? But at the same time, us pulling out of those, guess who's going in and setting the standards? China is. And then you look at, the, look at the, uh, the trade agreement that was just signed this weekend amongst China and a bunch of Asian economies basically not going quite as far as a TPP, but trying to recreate something along those lines We're not in that. And so we had a, we had the opportunity and we had it going into the Trump administration to have the TPP and having trade agreements basically surrounding China. And that was just basically tossed away. And so I do think there was leadership uh, at a global level. It was different and there definitely was, I I think there was a little bit here and there we can talk about, but the world system is also changing quite a bit. And so the pivot to China does mean that you can't do everything at once. Um, But I think we we need to look a bit more. I do think, you know, I'd like to see what happens with the IGOs going forward. And I do think the U.S. leadership will be much more prominent there. And again, while a lot of that is just more informal, uh, those standards matter and the leadership matters. And I think that's why we saw a lot of the allies uh, cheering in the streets at the election.
1: All right. Excellent point. Let's shift to the second issue we want to cover, Jamil. we could talk about this for an hour and a half, and that, that would be a podcast that, that is too long. We no. could
0: listen to Jamil no. talk about it for an hour and a half. Can I say
2: one thing, just one thing? I will grant, Lauren, that the Obama administration and the Trump administration were very different, and, and like last, I would much rather listen to an Obama speech than a Trump speech. What is not different between the two is they're both part of the larger give-up caucus, Right give in to our allies, give them what they want, make them, you know, with, the, with Trump, he just he just lets it go. I don't want troops anywhere, bring them all home, right? With Obama, it was much nicer. It felt much better, it made everybody feel good, but it was still give up, US out of the region, out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq. And with NATO, it was give them whatever they want. Don't spend your 2%, don't do any of that stuff. Missile defense, no, you don't need it. Let the Russians come in. Gas pipeline. No, you don't need that. Just buy it from the Russians. Give up, give up, give up. Donald Trump or Barack Obama, exactly the same on that stuff. All
1: right. Let's flip to our second issue, which is election security. So the Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, has now publicly dismissed the possibility that there was extensive fraud in the election that President Trump lost. So his job might be at risk along with Secretary Espers, former Secretary Espers. In fact, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, the relevant unit at DHS, DHS appears to be in the midst of a kind of house cleaning. Brian Ware, the assistant director of the cybersecurity division there, resigned last week. The director, Chris Krebs, could be next to go. Of course, the 2016 election 4 years ago had all kinds of issues regarding foreign interference and in cybersecurity. Lauren, take us through what we know about foreign interference in this month's national election.
0: So I think what we do know, you gave a pretty good overview of it right there. I think that everyone's still sort of suffering this election in inter- foreign election interference hangover from 2016. And in some ways, that's a good thing because it's driven us to develop and build and prepare like we hadn't done before. And I think what we saw happen in these elections um, just now, is that the great big boogeyman we were preparing for didn't materialize. I think that there are specific cases that we've heard about that came to light where foreign countries were accessing accessing information, but we didn't see them using it for the widespread, massive scale attacks on infrastructure like we expected. They have specifically said systems weren't messed with. Votes weren't changed. All these things that we thought could happen didn't happen. But I think the interesting thing that we did see this time is that the disinformation piece of the interference puzzle kicked up. And the ironic part is that it didn't necessarily kick up from a foreign source like we anticipated. The biggest threat on the election disinformation front came from our domestic sources. It came from individuals. It came from the White House itself. It came from a lot of groups coming together and sharing all of these questions and drawing things in, drawing concern into the equation that didn't necessarily warrant it. And it didn't come from the foreign sources like we expected. So I think the big question of what will foreign interference look like in 2020 was, okay, it was there, but we mostly did this to ourselves this time. If the objective of foreign interference is to sow distrust and decrease confidence in the most foundational part of our democracy, our free and fair elections, then we did most of their work for them this time around
1: before we get into whether there's a domestic issue, and I think that's a great question uh, andrea uh, let's let's keep the focus on uh, possible foreign interference, given that it appears they're they're at least as of right now uh, a few weeks after the election, that we largely free of foreign interference. Should we in fact be thanking the Trump administration for taking such a tough line and setting up such a good defense of our electoral systems from this possibility?
3: Um, so yes, it was, you know, one of the, you know, it was a good security uh, defensive mechanism for the machines, right? And so we to, we keep in mind, election security it, you ha- is you're multifaceted. It is dis- disinformation. It's the voting machines themselves. It's breaking into... Um, either the, the campaigns, you got the, the voter registries, all these different aspects to it. And so the, the nice thing about that, it, it is so uh, you know, federalized you know, or defederalized across, and decentralized across the country that I, I think you know, I, we, I would focus on, you know, Krebs and the work that CISA and DHS have done, I think has been great. Uh, the states have stepped up. There was, you know, a big election security bill uh, passed you know, about a year ago, but at the same time, we also saw, you know, what felt like it does. And I think it's under that. Um, different kinds of legislation that bipartisan that made its way through that didn't get signed off on on election security. And so I almost think it's it was in spite of some of the things that, that Trump was doing that we we had this because it was really, again, you know, going back to some of the, the benefits of our bureaucracy, it really was a lot of the civil servants and you know, the, the system that they were doing. Um, you know, some could argue and point to and we'll know about this probably more years ahead. But some of the defend forward from cyber command uh, might be something to to keep an eye on. Uh, and I would say, you know, that there, we weren't completely absent any kind of foreign interference because there was, and it with, you know, it's almost a combination of foreign and domestic and that they were basically targeting a lot of their disinformation and phishing campaigns focused on our own divisions. And so you think like the, the Iranian campaign with the Proud Boys uh, u- using some of that and you know, Russians have used some on uh, racial divisions. And so what we have made it easy for them and they are exploiting our own, you know, social cleavages are occurring right now and using a lot of the fishing and disinformation in that area um, but as far as either the we did see as far as the votes and the vote tallies and so forth you know that is you know, it, it was secure by everything that we have seen and uh you know i think you know the fact that we also didn't have a you know a hack and dump situation like we've seen what like we like we've seen like france saw um i think also highlights that the campaigns themselves took cybersecurity much more seriously than they did in 2016.
1: Jamil, uh, what what does it say about uh, our position in the world generally on cyber capabilities that we were able to pull off uh, a pretty secure election when we know there was a lot of foreign attention being paid?
2: Yeah, well, look, I think what it says is a couple of things. One, we have a very uh, diverse set of voting systems across the country. Even though there's a handful of vendors, uh, the actual systems being implemented across various jurisdictions, whether it's the states or the local jurisdictions, uh, are, are pretty varied. It's also you know, a testament to the fact that you have to be fairly close into these machines to really have an impact. And so, and I also think, frankly, that our more aggressive posture under this administration, when it comes to our cyber defense, both in terms of working with private industry through C- DHS and CISA, but also uh, by taking the fight to the enemy through uh, Cyber Command and NSA under, Paul, under General Paul Nakasone's leadership um, and the additional authorities both Congress and the president have given them, I think uh, has allowed us to deter some of this activity, right? And make clear to the enemy and our opponents that if they were to cross the line uh, of, of engaging in actual vote manipulation, that might be a bridge too far. That being said, I do think we actually saw a lot of uh, a lot of sort of messaging out there, not not hacking dump, as Andrea points out, but we did see a lot of foreign interference in terms of messaging and the like. And so I don't want to suggest that there was not foreign interference in the election. There was a substantial amount of foreign interference, just not of the kind that everybody was super purported to be super worried about. But I think that those of us like the folks on this on this uh, podcast uh, didn't really expect at all. I don't think anybody expected actual vote manipulation. We didn't see it. Uh, we did see a lot of foreign interference. Uh, but I think that we've been successful. I think there's more to be done. And I hope the Biden administration continues to press hard. Frankly, I, th- I hope that they get tougher on Russia, which has continued to interfere in elections. I hope they maintain the Trump administration's tough policy on China and strengthen it. I, f- I worry they won't. Um, and I hope they continue to push back on potential Iran and North Korean threats in the cyber arena.
1: Lauren, Andrea, where do you think the Biden administration is going to go once they're uh, once this transition begins on January twentieth,
3: um, so I, I, I imagine that you know Russia will become much more prioritized than what we've seen over the last four years, and so I, I do think we'll see uh, a lot more focus on Russia. But I, I'm not as concerned as Jamil as i We'll see what happens on, on a pivot away from China. Um, you know, I, I think that the names that have been put up there for who are likely going to lead the Pentagon um, have historically you know, focused on you know, containing, defending against China. And so I think we'll see a lot more in that. I do think the tactics likely will be different. And so we will see some differences along those lines. You know, I, I think you know, at the end of the day that the main threats will, will still be there and there still will be that big focus on China. I just think a lot of the tactics may, may differ, differ quite a bit. Um, an area that I think will be really interesting to watch is the, you know, the, the Trump's use of the prohibitions and restrictions on the companies and in, in investing in, uh, for China. It was over 100 last year, it's been 100 this year plus. And what Biden does on that regard, I think will be very interesting because it impacts so much of our our defense industrial base um, and impacts basically global supply chains. I mean, it really impacts so many different areas. And that might be an area where we start seeing some differences, but as as far as a slowdown on that, but I'm I'm not sure. But I do think that the biggest difference to me, I think would be in in the treating of Russia and then also a return to uh, better relations and reaching out with our uh, Western European allies. Lauren, you want to add anything?
0: Not a lot. I think that nailed a lot of the things that I think we can likely expect to see in sort of broad stroke perspectives. I think that, you know, as we were pointing out the things that made this election so secure, a lot of them had to do with new legislation, new laws, new authorities, that kind of thing that are going to exist after January. Those things are going to continue to be there. There's still going to be the authority. There's now the precedent for this public-private partnership across the federal, state, and local levels, you know, vis-a-vis election security. There's infrastructure in place. There's people. When we talk about elections, it's not just the technical machines, as Andrew's referencing. It's also the people and the process and the policies and authorities that go and surround those technical machines, as in how they're used. And state by state, there has been such progress that's been made that I don't think we're going to see No one's going to come in and say, good job, guys, stop doing all that great secure stuff. We really want to make sure that this is a total crapshoot next time. So I don't think that that's a concern. Um, I think that in the cybersecurity realm, more generally, we're going to continue to see this um, really advanced, really aggressive uh, action to continue to proactively secure systems beyond just our elections. Um, I think that's an area that's going to continue to grow and advance. I'm looking forward to seeing how it's going to happen.
1: All right, let's turn to uh, the third phase of, of the podcast and uh, go around the horn. Uh, and everyone bring up the issue that they're following that's not necessarily in the headlines. And I'm I'm going to do a little teaser here at the end. Uh, for the first time here in our 51st podcast, we're going to give some time to our producer and director, Grant Haver, to share the issue that he is following. So, Jamil, I'm going to call on you to go first here.
2: Great. Well, I'm following uh, the issue uh, in Peru, uh, where they have their third president um, in a very short period, their fifth president in five years. Um, there is chaos going on there. The, um, the Congress in Peru uh, impeached, it's a, it's a unicameral legislature. Uh, they removed the, uh, the prior president uh, apparently because he was uh, too uh, interested in dealing with corruption in the legislature as is the claim on the street. Um, he was then replaced by the head of, uh, of the Peruvian Congress who has now stepped down due to protests um, in the streets. Um, and he's now, and, and at the request of, of the Congress, and uh, there's now a new president. So there's a lot going on in Peru. Um, this is our hemisphere. Um, even though we've forgotten uh, the long abandoned Monroe Doctrine, it is an important part of what happens in our region. Uh, we ought to be paying attention, like we ought to be paying more attention to Venezuela. Frankly, we have dropped the ball to our detriment uh, there, uh, as well as in El Salvador and across, frankly, across our entire hemisphere. Uh, it's an error. And I, I hope. Uh, in a in a in a Biden administration, we see more of an emphasis on our hemisphere as well as well as other places. Uh, but I am concerned about what's going on in Peru, and that's the issue I'm following here uh, in in the current days.
1: Lauren,
0: a little bit in the headlines, out of the headlines, depending on which ones you're reading, and we touched on a little bit earlier. But I'm very interested in seeing how the Afghanistan drawdown drama plays out between now and the end of the year. Uh, we've got the president around fantastic soundbite lines in an election year about bringing everyone home in time for Christmas. And then you're hearing all these stories about national security and um, the intelligence community leadership behind the scenes, pushing back, trying to prevent that from happening, playing a shell game, moving troops around, trying to to keep that from actually taking place. And now with such significant leadership changes at the top levels at the Department of Defense and potentially at other places coming up, um, I think that there's a lot of potential for things to move on that front. Like we were saying between now and the end of the year, much to the, the detriment of our overall security posture in the world. So interested to see how that plays out and, you know, would, would absolutely love to be a fly on the wall in a whole bunch of rooms right now uh, over in the E-ring. So that's what I'm keeping an eye on. Andrea. Yeah, so I've been
3: watching with the, the Azerbaijan and Armenian ceasefire and you know, it's 44-day conflict. But what I'm curious about, mostly for the broader global um, implications, were the use of drones during the, the warfare. And so that, that's been not discussed quite a, quite that much. But, you know, with Azerbaijan using the, the drones really for targeting the whole range of Armenian defense systems. And taking them out. And really, what I think we're seeing, you know, is sort of in, in real time is, is a switch into what we always thought about, or people still think about it as science fiction, futuristic warfare, and how that is here now. And part of what makes it, you know, you know, potentially an inflection point also is just, you know, the asymmetric nature of warfare is so much shifting. And we, when we say that, we often think about cyber and cyber you know, weapons and so forth. But there are all these other areas, like drones are, are you know, relatively inexpensive. And so you have smaller powers now capable of taking out big weapon systems without having to spend a ton of money. And you know as we get into an area where you know, the international system is becoming more unstable, we're not, you know, perhaps it's a unipolar moment ending and we're seeing a you know, shifting polarity going on, that is when you start seeing more of these smaller power conflicts starting to pop up and you know, looking at the use of drones going forward and just the use of technology. I mean, we're seeing with, you know, now we've, with that ceasefire there, we now have Ethiopia popping up with you know, starting to be more and more uh, conflict and leveraging internet blackouts to completely shut down communications. And so th- this interplay of technology with, with warfare and really the moving from, You know, Cold War style thinking about uh, warfare into the future. I think we have to. You know, that future is is going on right now. Um, So I'm keeping an eye on that and seeing you know what lessons other countries may learn from what just happened uh, with Armenia and Azerbaijan.
1: The issue I'm tracking, and I believe I've brought this up previously, is Mozambique, where there's there's a lot of violence in northern Mozambique in the Cabo Delgado province. Uh, the perpetrators have been linked to the Islamic State. There are reports of massive beheadings in northern Mozambique, uh, 50 people, 20 people, um, some abductions, the kind of terrorist activities we're seeing in the Sahel, in Nigeria, in other areas. So, so one of the things I'll be tracking is, think about the larger implications of this, is how the, the incoming Biden administration treats Africa. Uh, is it an afterthought, or is it seen as a place where we have these larger uh, issues and interests at stake? Are we going to be looking for the influence of, of terrorist groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and also foreign adversaries like China and Russia. So that's what I'm tracking. All right. And now the, the podcast debut of Grant Haver. Grant, what are you tracking?
4: Les, thanks for uh, letting me join you guys. Very excited to um, play more of a part in fault lines in the future. Um, So I'm going to make the most of my debut by uh, giving you a three for one. Uh, So as the coronavirus continues to ravage the globe, the UN has warned of famines of biblical proportions. They estimate that 270 million people will be at crisis level hunger, an 82 percent increase since 2019, where we saw the number of food insecure people grow by 10 million. Uh, Andrew hinted at, at this earlier that there is a civil war brewing in Ethiopia. Uh, this conflict was kicked off by the Tigray People's Liberation Front holding regional elections after national elections were postponed by the central government due to coronavirus fears. At this point, 20,000 refugees have fled to Sudan, hundreds have died, and the conflict is spilling into Eritrea, which could jeopardize the recent peace and nation uh, economic connections between the two countries. Um, In Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi's party just won an election, allowing it to form the next government. However, the country has not seen the diplomatic – or the democratic – blossoming that the world had hoped for. Last year, Ms. Aung San Suu Kyi traveled to the ICJ in The Hague to defend the military, who still largely controls the government, against claims that it had committed genocide against the Rohingya Muslims. She said that the, uh, at the court that it cannot be ruled out that disproportionate force had been used against the Rohingya, inferring genocidal intent presented an incomplete and misleading fractal picture. Her Facebook page, once carried the post, fake rape, abruptly discounting the systemic and well-documented sexual violence committed against the Rohingya. What do these things have in common? The Nobel Peace Prize. The UN World Food Program won in 2020. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed won in 2019. And Aung San Suu Kyi won back in 1991. Maybe the Swedes don't know anything about peace, or maybe the world's problems are tougher than any one person can solve.
1: All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Zach Varda for research, and of course, we want to thank our producer and director, Grant Haver. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.